Welcome to the Passion Harvest podcast audio series. Thank you so much for listening today. I am Louisa, your host, International Passion Ambassador. If you would like to watch this episode, please head over to our Passion Harvest channel on YouTube. We love taking you on a journey to discover your passions. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to Louisa TV. This is the third episode in a four-part series, Afterlife Messages or Afterlife Communication, Communication with the Non-Physical Realms angels, magic, mysteries, the multidimensional realms. And I've been guided to share my experiences with all these elements in this series. I'm going to offer you something a little bit different today, something I have not shared before and something that changed the course of my life forever. It is my absolute belief that We are spiritual beings having a physical experience and we are eternal and the intricate web of connection with loved ones on the other side is always there. And when we tap into the subtle aspects of ourselves, the non-physical aspect of ourselves, we allow ourselves to open up to possibilities that moves and changes worlds. In this episode, I'm going to offer you three very simple principles that will allow you a direct line of communication from your soul to the other realms. And it's also something you can apply to any aspect of your life. I truly believe the fundamental truth of everything is love. We are love. We come here for love and we are love in our human form. The reason I'm sharing this story is to show you that despite what happens on our external landscape, despite what happens to us, our ultimate freedom comes from within. We get to choose how to be and how to think and to act in any given situation and Our reality is absolutely created by our point of consciousness. And we can do and be and create anything. And this experience showed me that we have a remarkable force of power with inside us. And while this experience offered me incredible sorrow and despair and for my loved ones as well, it also offered me moments of joy and incredible spiritual evolution and growth. And I'd like you to realise that the, our loved ones, the non-physical realm, the multidimensional realms, angels, guides, are not in some far-off universe. They are right here. They are the sunrise. They are a smile They are a feeling of joy. They are a leaf rustling in the wind. They are the waves of the ocean. We choose to come to this life in our physical incarnation to have experiences, good and bad. Well, there's no good and bad. If you can 
use any experience and conflict and contrast as an opportunity for spiritual evolution. Profound growth takes place and this is certainly what happened to me during this experience. And the three very simple elements or principles that I was guided by were faith and hope and love. And I describe faith as believing that it will occur. So it's a fundamental belief that it will occur. And I define hope as an expectation, so expecting it to happen. And I define love as allowing yourself to make this a feeling experience. And you can, again, incorporate any of these elements into your life. But I discovered a miracle and I found something much more profound than me and greater than me. And this is my story today that I'll share with you. So five years ago, an event occurred in my life that changed the course of my life. I still remember the phone call. It was like time froze. I was in a grocery store in a supermarket and my mother called and she was crying and she said my brother who had been living in Asia for 10 years had been arrested and his during his arrest his young daughter had been taken and he didn't know where she was and he needed our help and despite the terrible situation in that moment something came over me. It was a calmness, a peacefulness, and a message was relayed to me. And it wasn't relayed telepathically as in a verbal sense. It was an emotional signature. It was a feeling. And the feeling was everything's going to be okay. Two days later, I was on a plane traveling to a remote southern province on a small island in Asia, having no idea what I would expect or what I would find when I got there. My brother was held in a lockup for the first few days and I was allowed to help him transfer to a provincial jail where he was to spend the remainder of his time. When we arrived there, it was surrounded by a large cement wall topped with barbed wire. And there was a big sign that said, Rehabilitation for Men. We entered through a small metal door and went up three steps. You have to understand the smells and the heat was overpowering and I looked ahead and there was a row of guards, prison guards. And I heard these noises behind them and they moved as we walked through and in front of me was a line of metal bars. And behind that was hundreds and hundreds of prisoners men barely dressed in rags filthy the the walls were filthy the 
The smell of sweat and men was overpowering. But more than that, it was the energy. It was the energy of men that had lost their freedom. The energy of lives that had been held captive like dogs. Actually, you wouldn't even keep your dog like this. And I was terrified for my brother. There were cats everywhere, cats like you could not imagine what they looked like, but they kept down the plague of rats and the lice plagues, and every man had to shave their head to control the lice plagues. And I don't know how my brother managed to walk through those bars on that first day. My legs would have buckled and we said goodbye and he kept a straight poker face. I don't know how he did it. And the prisoners parted and he entered and I left my first thought and I prayed to God that he wasn't raped that first night. And we were lucky we could afford to pay for his protection. In between this experience, we were so worried about his daughter, who was only four at the time. She had been taken during the arrest. He didn't know by whom. And we were worried that she had been sold. There was a high prevalence of sex trafficking in the area, and we couldn't find her anywhere. We didn't have any leads and not everyone spoke English. I speak for myself, it was the most traumatic of experiences, but it was my brother that was in hell, that he showed the most remarkable demonstration of despite our external circumstances, the true freedom can only be found within. He lost everything. He lost his child. He lost his home. He lost his freedom, but he still managed to survive. The will to survive often is incredible. He told me that the mayor of his cell, an inmate elected by the guards, there were many cells in the jail and each cell was controlled by someone who was titled a mayor gave him one piece of important advice on the first day and the advice was be happy. My brother told me in the first few days he thought about escaping. It wouldn't be hard, but then he would be hunted and it would assume his guilt and he was innocent. Synchronistically, just before his arrival, several men had escaped and they were hunted down and shot and killed. And as a message to the other prisoners who might have thought of escaping, they were hung upside down by their ankles in the central courtyard of the jail. And you have to understand how hot it was. There was no air, there was no breeze. It was like living in a filthy, dirty sauna. And the flies were incredible. And that smell of dead bodies was something no man would ever forget. Several days later, they were cut down and their families were allowed to come and collect them for burial. 
When I went to see my brother in the only visitor's waiting room, we spent many an hour there together, and it might sound strange, but we did have some happy memories there. He often teased me. I was trying to be positive on that first day and I gave him a piece of advice that I don't think he received very well. I said to him, as if trying to make it a little bit better, at least you liked camping when you were younger. He often teases me about this statement. So we spent hours and talking and reminiscing and I'm sure he had his nights of crying that he didn't always share with me. And I know he saw things that couldn't be spoken of, that were unimaginable. Something that you would try and forget in your psyche, things that just couldn't be spoken. But what would have got me was the not knowing, not knowing how long I would have been there for. If I was told it would have been days or weeks or months or even years, at least I could understand that concept and evaluate what I was going to do. But it was the unknowing that I would find desperately hard. And he did tell me that if he was convicted for life, he would, in fact, kill himself. Sitting in the visitor's waiting room, I often smuggled in vodka for him in large water bottles. And we had some funny moments. I remember once, only after a few hours, I think it was only two hours into having a conversation and just sitting and being there with him and offering him whatever support I could. I was covered in sweat and I don't know how he bared it and I looked down at my feet because they were swollen, they were so swollen, but you couldn't even see any of my skin because they were covered, it was covered, completely covered in flies swarming all over me. And he often joked and he burst out laughing and he said, shame you didn't like camping when you were younger. <laughs> so we did find, manage to find joyful moments despite the circumstances. He often joked that he said, my gosh, I can't believe it. I'm the main character in Banged Up Abroad. And if you don't know what that show is, it's a US TV show that highlights people who have been incarcerated in foreign jails. We joked about this a lot. And he wondered if he'd be the star of the show of Banged Up Abroad. He it was horrific circumstances. So in between visiting my brother when the time was allocated and it shortly moved from the visitor's waiting room to the central courtyard, he convinced me that I would be safe going through the bars with hundreds of men and I believed him. So my visits soon turned to going into the internal jail he showed me his sleeping quarters, the cell that he was locked in, and he said what got him the most was the heat. It often got to 60 degrees in the cell at night. I think that's about 120, 140 Fahrenheit. And it was a cell meant for 10 men, and 
it was cramped with up to 60 to 70 men. Many of them had nowhere to sleep and they sat upright. So in between my visits to him, I searched for my niece. I searched in shelters and I searched in orphanages and I had no luck. I had a few leads, but nothing. And it was finally with the help of the consulate, several weeks later, we found her. She was being housed in a shelter for girls. It was called the Home for Girls in a remote island six hours away. And it was a home for girls under the age of 18 that had been sold or trafficked or abused. I um, rushed to her to collect her and we were told that she had been awarded to the state temporary custody. This was unimaginable to us, a foreign citizen awarded temporary custody to a state service of a different country, but this is what happened. The consulate went to visit her to check on her welfare. And at one point she was declared the most vulnerable child overseas. She had her basic needs met, food, water, and shelter, but she had no sheets, she had no shower. She had very little access to medical care. There was an outbreak of dengue fever and thousands were dying on a weekly basis. She only spoke English and many of the Children in the shelter didn't speak English and many of the carers didn't speak English either. When I went to see her, I was allowed three hours a few times a week. I asked how she was and she said she was okay. She had a friend to take care of her. She didn't have an adult carer. She had another girl, I think the girl was around 16 years old that cared for her. She was only four years old. She could hardly dress or wash herself. And I asked her what she did in the shelter and she told me her favourite game was collecting bottle caps off the street and in the absence of toys. <laughs> and she delighted in this game. It was... On the second time that we lost custody of her and again her custody was awarded to state services, it was really a devastating blow. But really this whole time I never gave up faith, hope and love, not for one minute, but I remember walking outside after the court hearing and she desperately wanted to come with me. She couldn't understand why I couldn't take her. And I had a driver called Jack. He had the most beautiful smile with missing teeth and he drove the oldest van I have ever, ever seen. But he treated it like a Rolls Royce and he saw my face and knew the court case hadn't gone too well. And he said, ma'am, I think we need to go to similar similar the cathedral of miracles, similar the cathedral by the sea. I would have done anything and I had nothing else to do at the time and I said, okay, Jack, let's go. 
<laughs> well, I forgot to ask Jack how long it was to get there. And the next thing I found myself still in the van, traveling on a giant barge across a huge river to another island. And the trip to get there was another four or five hours away through the jungle, through beautiful scenery. It was so hot, it was just beyond unbelievable and along very, very long, windy roads. So we arrived at Simla and it was the size of a cathedral, but it was not like the cathedrals I had seen in Europe. It had no architectural integrity whatsoever. It was bits and pieces of this massive structure on top of a hill above the sea. It was like out, some, out of some sort of bizarre movie, there were topless men, rows and rows of them carrying buckets and working. Like some ancient movie, like it was unbelievable. But at the same time, it wasn't a tourist attraction. It was as I got closer to it and as I felt this cathedral called Simala. It was a living, breathing place of worship, place of prayer, and it was filled with the love of the most simplest people, the people with nothing really, but who had such faith and such hope and such love. And I've never seen such poverty when I was in this country in all my life. Many, many people, there was no social security, hardly any social welfare, and most people didn't know where their next meal was coming from and didn't know how they were going to feed their child that day and certainly didn't know where they'd be resting their head at night, but they were happy. We so often forget that in our culture. They were happy with the most simplest things and it was really awe-inspiring. This cathedral had rooms and rooms of higgledy-piggledy rooms and idols everywhere and a giant wall made of broken glass, coloured glass. It was childlike magnificence. I don't think it had ever had some an architecture designed it, but again it was designed with faith and hope and love and I saw people lighting candles and praying and I thought I'd do that. So I lit some candles and I made some wishes and I saw people putting holy water on their head and I did that as well. And then I saw people writing notes with a prayer on it and you'd pay the priest and he would bless them and read the prayer for you. So I thought I'd do that too. And on the piece of paper I wrote, allow my, the freedom of my niece and my brother. And I handed over to the priest and then I thought, oh, no, do I have to pay twice? Is that two prayers? But he didn't seem to mind. And after all this time, I decided to go and sit down at a, a pew at the front in a side room. There were many rooms everywhere in this, what was termed the Cathedral of Miracles. And I sat down and 
it's amazing how things occur. And I looked down at my feet and I saw a bottle top. And it reminded me of my niece. And it was then that I broke down. And it was then that I realized that I could no longer force and push and pull circumstances. It was then that I realized that I didn't need to struggle. All I had to do was search for meaning. And I never have been taught to pray, but I have to tell you, I sobbed and I sobbed and I got down on my knees and I prayed. And I prayed for a miracle. And it was again in that moment for the second time that after months and months that a calm overcame me and I was again gifted the emotional signature of everything's going to be okay. And it was then that I was shown and I realised all the synchronicities that had happened. I won't go into detail, but paperwork appeared and legal documents disappeared and appeared and people came into our life like angels and people offered help without even asking. And we went to places we had never planned to go. And I realised that we had been guided all the time. And I realised that I had never lost any of this faith and hope and love. I just needed to recognise the breadcrumbs along the way that led me to this point in time and space when I was down on my knees in this church cathedral in Simala in a far remote southern province in Asia. And I was so very grateful and I knew everything was going to be okay. And I'll continue next week what happened then. But the reason this is so important to share with you, it's because so often many of you want to connect with loved ones and I say it's found within you and I can understand why you think, well, that's hard. I don't understand it, but understand, but we can't see with our physical eyes faith and hope and love, but we know it's there. We know it's in our heart and we know it's external to us. We're in a, a power far greater than us. So if you apply these three simple principles. Faith having the expectation that it will occur, belief, trusting that it will occur and love, making this or allowing this to be a feeling experience, you will have a direct communication with your loved ones. It doesn't happen as you see them in their physical form. They are spirit and spirits vibrate at a much higher frequency than us. It's gentle like a soft breeze. It's kind. It's soft. But it's still very real and it's still very there. 
On another note, I'm still offering my intuited readings, which have been remarkably exciting. And what this means is I read your field and your energy and somehow I found the ability to tap into the multidimensional realm portals of worlds and always the information I receive for you is what you need to hear at this point in time and always the guidance is of the most loving high vibration. Each time what shows up for each individual is different. I've been doing a lot of things on changing timelines, which is fascinating work and so beneficial. And I've had so many incredible reviews. Thank you so much. And if you feel called to find out more about this service, I'll leave a link in the show notes to find out more or make a booking or just head on over to the Passion Harvest shop page for more details. I have learned that our lifetimes are short in the larger picture of all that is. It's the moments that are important, the special moments. It's not the things that we take with us. It's the feelings. I've also learned that thoughts do create things and our reality is created by our point of consciousness and each moment is a lesson to learn and grow and we can evolve exponentially when we treat circumstances that may seem conflicting and contrasting as a remarkable opportunity for growth and spiritual evolution. And we've incarnated in this humanness to be human. And connection is a part of that. And the journey we have with others is so very essential, but it's also the journey primarily that we have with ourselves. I've also learned that everything is going to be okay. And I've also learned that faith and hope and love makes miracles, embraces miracles and moves mountains. So thank you so much to, for listening to me. See you next week. Bye for now. That is the end of our passionate episode. Thank you so much for listening and please subscribe, leave a review, tell your friends and spread the passion. As always, every day, may you be more and more passionate.